Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Sandman Season 1. Sandman was written by Neil Gaiman and illustrated by various artists, and it came out from 1989 to 1996, and we are specifically discussing volumes one and two and part of volume three, if you're familiar with the comic series. Yes, and the Netflix adaptation, The Sandman, came out in 2022. Yeah, and so here we are. Talking about one of our favorite authors, mm-hmm. Neil Gaiman, and one of his most well-loved and uh, critically acclaimed works, which is this comic series. Um, like I said, the Netflix show covers the first two and a half volumes yeah. of an 11-volume series, comic series. So we are very hopeful <laughs> yeah. that this Netflix show will get renewed. They haven't announced anything yet. It was a very high production cost for Netflix. Mm-hmm. And Netflix is kind of bad about canceling stuff unless it's like a really notable success. Yeah. So it does feel a little tenuous. Maybe you're listening to this now and you're like, oh, silly Ian and Adina. They <laughs> they are already two more seasons out. I don't know. But I'm putting that hopeful thought into the future. Yeah, yeah. Th- that's why we're naming this episode Sandman <laughs> or the Sandman season one. Yeah. In the hopes that we will be discussing a season two and three in the future. Yes. And if you, like us, love Neil Gaiman, you should check out our other Neil Gaiman episodes. Mm -hmm. We did an episode on Coraline. Stardust. Stardust. And... Good Omens. Good Omens, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, we have three other episodes on Neil Gaiman. We also happened to see Neil Gaiman in person recently. Yeah, he came to Pittsburgh. He was doing a speaking tour. And part of that was just him coming on stage and doing a lot of readings from his short stories, poetry, etc. And then he was also taking questions from the audience, which was really cool. And oh my God, his voice is just amazing. If you've never listened to any of his books on audiobook, he does the narration yeah. and just, he's perfect, Ian. <laughs> yeah, he's a phenomenal uh person to just listen to speak on anything like yeah. anything I would listen to him talk about so mm-hmm. uh, and he's he is a very interesting person to listen to talk about his works his writing he's very open about the process and mm-hmm. how he approaches things he's a very just seems like a very genuine person yeah which makes him all the easier to like mm-hmm. but this particular work of his uh the Sandman series has been in kind of a um, development hell, yes. so to speak, or limbo for years. There have been multiple attempts to adapt it in the past. I actually heard recently that Neil Gaiman confessed to leaking a early version of a movie script for it. Really? Because it was so bad that he kind of wanted there to be like a negative reaction to it. Oh so my it would God. just get like <laughs> kind of swept under the rug. Wow. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was attached to a potential movie adaptation of it like mm-hmm. eight years ago or so. Wow. I don't think it ever really would have worked in a movie format. No. But with the uh, increase of television series and especially televised adaptations. Mm-hmm. It seemed like an optimal time, I think, to do this as a series. Yeah, and not just that, but also, you know, shows having higher budgets. Yep, yeah. And also um, visual effects being a lot better, right? Because so much of this is trippy dream shit, right? Yeah. And we need a high production budget. Yeah, I mean, we've definitely watched our fair share of shows that are sci-fi or fantasy-based. And if 
a significant moment relies on an execution of visual effects that isn't there. Yeah. It really undercuts the moment, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate, but is just the truth. And with the Sandman, so much of it relies on solid visual effects. Yeah. And I am happy to say that Netflix delivered on that front. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Let's uh, get into talking about this. We have a lot to discuss, obviously. There's 11 episodes of the show, and we're going to kind of follow the show format and then also get into how the comics diverge. But for the most part, it's a pretty faithful uh, show adaptation. What we're going to do is kind of mention a quick summary of each episode and then kind of get into the little details, things we liked about each episode, things we want to talk about, uh, characters, things like that. Yeah. So episode one... It begins with introducing us to this magical occult group that are attempting to do a ritual to summon and capture death so that they can use death to resurrect like lost loved ones. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, their summoning doesn't go as planned because instead of death, they've accidentally captured Dream. Yes. But they decide to keep Dream. They strip him of his belongings Mm -hmm. and imprison him for a hundred years, constantly trying to negotiate and barter with him Mm -hmm. to get anything out of him. Yeah. But he refuses to even speak to any of them. And we see the passage of time Mm -hmm. as the man who is the leader of this cult, as he grows older, passes away, and his son kind of takes over and inherits essentially this prisoner. Yeah. And eventually, yeah, Dream does get out, but... This episode is really interesting, and so is this issue in the comics, because you mentioned as we were talking about, as we were outlining, um, getting ready to discuss this, you know, this is our first introduction to our main character, right? Dream, he's also called Morpheus, he's one of the Endless, and these are powerful beings that live forever, right? And they have power over certain things, and they are trying to capture Death, who is Dream's sister. Yes. Um, But instead, they capture Dream. And, like, Dream doesn't do anything in this episode, right? No. He's just sitting there trapped. Yes. He is just in this bubble, Mm -hmm. just naked, and kind of just observing everything going on. And really, the main characters of this issue and episode are the father and the son that kind of own the home that he's imprisoned in. Yeah. And I think it's such a good tone setter, though, for the series, because... Even though Dream is the main character in so many other ways, he's not usually. He's usually like a side character or just kind of playing sometimes an important role, sometimes just kind of a subtle background role in an ever-shifting narrative. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of clues the reader or viewer in early on that like... This is not a conventional story. Yes. Yeah, I agree with you. In the show... Dream has a raven, uh, Jessamy. Yes. And unfortunately, that raven is shot by Alex, um, the Magus's son, which is very sad. Yes, because the the raven is trying to save Dream from his imprisonment. And the son that has felt conflicted about having Dream captured, but is being pressured by his abusive father, ends up giving in to his dad's demands and shooting the raven. Yeah. And this is kind of a turning point to a degree. And also, I like this inclusion because it does give, even though Dream is kind of not doing anything the whole episode, he clearly has some kind of attachment and affection towards the raven. Yeah. And when it's killed in kind of this graphic way, he clearly has a sense of loss about it. Yeah, and anger, right? And this is the issue, right? Because 
these men will not let Dream go because they're afraid of what he will do to them if they let him go. And so we see um, the father and also Alex trying to reason with Dream and like barter. And they're Mm -hmm. like, give me anything. I'll let you go. Give me power. I'll let you go. Promise that you just won't hurt me and I'll let you go. Yeah. But instead, Dream is just like, fuck off. (laughs) Like, I'm not going to promise you anything. I would rather rot in this cell for a thousand years than even speak one word to you. And I'm like, he is so petty. (laughs) (laughs) It is great though. But I I also love the idea too of he is just this thing that was passed down from father to son, this like weird inheritance that gives them nothing. Like they wanted, you know, obviously to originally capture death and to have control over death to a degree. Mm -hmm. But now they're just stuck with this like immortal being that they're they're terrified of and they don't get anything out of and they have to have security Mm -hmm. guarding him 24-7. Well, and originally they did get something out of Dream's tools that they took from him, right? They take the sand from him, they take his helm, and they take his ruby. And this gives them money or power in some way. But... Those items are eventually taken from this family, from this house, by um, the mistress of this man who runs off and takes it with her. In the comic, it's a little bit different because the second in command to this like occult society ends up running off with the mistress. Yeah. His name is Ruthven. Yeah, or Sykes. <laughs> Sykes is easier to, to say. I like that better. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so it, it's a little bit more complicated, but essentially they lose dreams he has three items his magic sand his ruby and his helm and all three of those items are taken from him there's also the added aspect of the show of the character of the corinthian yeah which is interesting because the corinthian plays a larger role in later issues but doesn't appear until those issues in the comics but the show kind of works him into the plot line earlier like at this point yeah where he's more actively trying to keep dream captured because Mm -hmm. he wants to roam the world without dreams supervision the corinthian is a nightmare that dream created he's escaped into the mortal world he likes killing people yep he's happy to keep doing it he has no eyes only like teeth mouths for eyes yeah it's not it's not (laughs) a good uh thing there's a part in the comics where he bites someone's finger off with his eye yeah and i'm like can he eat with his eyes well i think that's how he eats the eyeballs i couldn't tell if he was putting in his mouth or in his eyeball they never show it i just (laughs) figured that was like the implication yeah i like that finger reveal though in the comics because you don't know what's going on with the corinthian yet yeah and you actually are getting it in the comics like drawn from his vantage point yeah and a man just reaches at him for his eyes and suddenly pulls his hand away and his fingers are gone yeah and you're just like what the fuck just happened yeah (laughs) it's pretty crazy yeah it's, but the effects, though, he only removes his sunglasses like a couple of times, but the mouth eyes are unsettling, Gross. but well done. Well done, for sure. Dream eventually does get free, though. By the time Alex is much older and in a wheelchair, he eventually smudges the summoning circle that they use to capture death or capture Dream. Yeah. And Dream is able to escape. And of course, he exacts his revenge on Alex. Um, Alex's father is dead at this point. But Alex is subjected to a continual waking nightmare where he keeps having a nightmare and waking up and then still being in a nightmare and then waking up forever. Yep. This is awful. This is a perfect revenge. I want, yes. I wonder how, like, long it, like, 
I imagine it's just until he dies of natural causes. Yeah. But like, is it like Inception where he's dreaming more rapidly than he's actually like existing? I don't know. That's interesting. I think he could have done it if he wanted to. (laughs) Let's move on to uh, the second episode, which in this episode, it's really kind of just about dream regrouping, going back to his realm, finding out that things have kind of collapsed in his absence and a lot of his creatures have gone missing and trying to figure out like what he does now because he's been gone from his realm and he's been captured for so long. Yes, and he's also incredibly weak because he still doesn't have any of the items that were taken from him. Yeah. And so he's looking to kind of like figure out what's happened and also regain some of his strength. Mm-hmm. We're introduced here to some really important characters in the dreaming mm-hmm. realm. Uh, we're introduced to Cain and Abel, who I guess are like some side DC characters. Yeah, you know, I just read that. Yeah. Like the other, because like I never even thought to think about that. Mm-hmm. Thought thought to think about it because like <laughs> you're just like okay, they're the biblical characters, yeah, right? Yeah, but they're not. I don't know. They're part of like a <laughs> horror series. I think. Oh, okay, interesting. Um, but they are interesting because they are these two brothers that are silly and ridiculous, but. Cain keeps killing Abel and mm-hmm. Abel keeps just like resurrecting. And so they just, this is like their vibe, and right? They, and they have this really bickering, antagonistic, like childish yeah. attitude towards each other. <laughs> oh, who's the actor? What's his name who plays Abel in the show? Oh, yeah. From Asim? Uh, yes. Yeah. Asim. Chaudhry? Asim Chaudhry. Asim Chaudhry. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, from, I think uh, so. Because we watched him in Taskmaster. Yeah. And so he was so good in this role. I love them. And we're also introduced to Lucianne, um, who is the librarian in The Dreaming. I really love that they changed the casting to a black woman for mm-hmm. this. Like, I love her in the in the comics. He's just sort of this, like, grouchy old man. So it's interesting in the show... Dream needs to kill the gargoyle Gregory in order to reclaim some of his energy. And it's very sad. It's very depressing. This doesn't happen in the comics. So I wonder why they decided to make this choice if they wanted there to be a specific reason for him interacting with Cain and Abel a little bit more. Perhaps. And but it does feel a little bit like forced emotional like, you know, suddenly we're just introduced to Cain and Abel and this yeah. like gargoyle Gregory. And he's like, I have to take Gregory away from you for the power I gave him. Yeah, and then and it's like, like this really sad moment. But you're like, I don't know any of these people. I know. You're like, why am I supposed, what am I supposed to feel here? We we do get like a another gargoyle being born Goldie. Yes. Also in this episode, Dream needs to find out where the hell all of his stuff is. Yeah. So he goes and meets with the three fates, Mm -hmm. the three in one. And there's a really cool scene. He has to bring them like an offering of all these like random things. And he has to take them from other people's dreams. Yeah. So we get these really great in the in the show, these CGI shots. Like Mm -hmm. he has to bring them a literal crossroads. Yeah. And so there's just a shot of a huge hand reaching into this like person's dream person's dream and like literally pulling out a crossroads there's like a snake a gallows Mm -hmm. like a lot of really cool stuff and and the fates end up giving him clues about where he can find his three items that were stolen from him it is interesting to read these comics and kind of look back at this art style and like the printing as well here Ian and I were kind of going through our comics and you know we have we own Watchmen as well which you know came around around like came out around the same time yeah and just seeing like kind of the limitations of color and also 
like line work. Yeah, so essentially it feels like the coloring was, and I wish I knew more about like the specific printing processes and the inks used and like how they colored and reproduced like the images. Yeah. Because I feel like I would, I'd love to know more about that, but at least stylistically, the colors seem limited to like brighter, more saturated primary colors for the most part. Yeah. And if you do want any depth of shadow and like dimension, that has to come more from the line work and the inking. Yeah. Because in comics now, I mean, you'll see all kinds of um, different styles, coloring styles. Yeah. Some that are more painterly. They have like characters have more dimension and depth just from the way they're uh, colored and Mm -hmm. painted in that way. But from this time, the coloring is more block coloring where it's like, okay, face and arms are all the same skin tone color. This shirt is all the same color and all of the shading and depth comes from like the way it's drawn. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're used to reading modern comics, like when I started reading these, I'm like, it feels very cluttered to me because Mm -hmm. of all the little line work, right? Yeah. And there's also a very loose hand Mm -hmm. to a lot of this work, which I think is stylistic you know, intentionally to a point with this series. Yeah. Also, I think the formatting, they get very inventive with. Yeah. Like the way panels are laid out. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite moments in the whole comic in in terms of its uh, layout comes later in the series with the character of Rose. Yes. She falls asleep and enters a dream. Mm-hmm. And when she does, the panels tilt. Sideways. And you are forced to hold the comic sideways throughout this whole dreaming portion. I love that. I thought that was so inventive mm-hmm. to like tip you into this dream, dream world. Mm-hmm. Just really smart. Very, very cool. As we go into episode three, this is sort of dream realizing where his sand is. He is getting his sand back either from John Constantine or Joanna Constantine. Constantine. That's how they say it in the show. I, I know. know. <laughs> I'm so used to saying Constantine. I know. That in my head, I'm like, Constantine is probably technically the correct way to say it. I'll try my best. This is an example, like we said earlier, with Cain and Abel, of like DC characters being thrown in. Yeah. Because it's easy to forget because this is such a expansive and very like genre-defying work that this is set in the DC universe, which at times I feel like it detracts from the story because we're like, here are all these DC characters and their connections yeah. to the world. I mean, Constantine isn't the worst of this, but it is sort of like, why do we have this random character inserted? Yeah, I do think Constantine, at least as far as their um, skill set, I'll say, in terms of being like an exorcist and yeah. kind of being Connection involved to the in, demons. It, it feels like in like well fit into the world of Sandman. Yeah. But then other times he's like, hey, Martian Manhunter. And it's like, uh, yeah, all right. Why? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. But we're introduced here to Constantine, and we have this really cool exorcism scene in the show where Joanna does this exorcism. Yeah, I was a little confused by the circumstances of it. I know, it's thrown at you very quickly. Like, it's a member of the royal family that's getting married, and I thought the royal family member was possessed, possessed, but it was the person they were marrying. Yeah. But regardless, it it is interesting and kind of funny. Joanna has to dress up as the priest that's Mm -hmm. marrying them and, like, luring the demon out. Yes. The, The, once again, the visuals of it, the VFX are great. 
This is where we're introduced to Matthew in the show. And I love this because Matthew isn't introduced in the comics until the second volume. But here we have, you know, in the third episode, Matthew the Raven mm-hmm. coming in, voiced by Patton Oswalt. I love this. Great, great casting. I know. Yeah, and I, I really love, too, that this is giving Dream a little bit more of a emotional through line. yeah. Because really the only connective tissue between these early issues and comics is him just hunting down his lost stuff. Yeah. But this gives him more of an emotional investment because we saw him lose his first Raven in the first episode Mm -hmm. and that being emotionally effective. He's kind of resistant to having Matthew tag along with him at first. Like, I don't need a Raven. Kind of thinking about, you know, the the Raven that he just lost. But it's also someone for him to talk to, which I like. Also, uh, the the character just infuses a really good amount of humor into situations that I think is, like, really effective, but Mm -hmm. also giving them kind of a playful dynamic, giving Dream. Because so much of, uh, in the comics, a lot of Dream's dialogue is just internal dialogue. Yeah. Or not at all, even. Sometimes he's just, like lingering mm-hmm. <laughs> like not saying much yeah so i think it helps to give him someone to talk to yeah we sadly find out that the sand is at joanna or john's ex-girlfriend's place mm-hmm. rachel um i don't really love how the show or the comic kind of is like oh junkie rachel like yeah she was always a junkie and now she's a sand junkie yeah it kind of undercuts like I think the idea is more interesting that, like, anyone could have fallen prey yes. to the power of the sands. Mm-hmm. But instead, it's like, oh, she was a, a junkie and, like, <laughs> yeah. she did it to herself. And John in the comics seems less broken up about it, too. He's just like, ah, oh, poor Rachel. He's just like, oh, like, that's you're gross now. really unfortunate. <laughs> in, the, in the show, like, Joanna's really upset and she, I think still loved Rachel and wanted to be with her. Well, and it, I think it really says a lot about her character that she kind of just like up and left this relationship that she seemed to have been invested in. Yeah. The fact that she's kind of emotionally detached and that, you know, maybe she's still upset about that and doesn't want to confront it. So mm-hmm. this situation is forcing her to. Yeah. I like the emotional depth that gives Joanna. Yeah. Of course, Rachel uh, is just given like a sweet dream before she passes away from malnutrition but pretty pretty upsetting so uh moving on in the fourth issue slash episode a hope in hell Mm -hmm. dream and matthew go to hell where he knows his helm has been traded with a demon and so he is there to confront lucifer about it Mm -hmm. and reclaim it yeah and you know we haven't talked about like the diverse casting in the show like a ton yet um and it's funny because Lucifer is actually like the opposite of this. Mm-hmm. So I really love that this show intentionally recast a lot of what was represented in the comics, either in a female role or in a black role and just like opening the space up. Right. Yeah. We have death as a black woman. We have Lucianne who is a white man and is a black woman. Uh, we have Joanna Constantine yep. instead of John. Um, but it's kind of funny because Lucifer in the comics, Mm -hmm. looks like a blonde woman. You know what it reminds me of that's really funny? Yeah. Is it reminds me of the movie Constantine. Yeah. Because in that, the angel Gabriel is played by... Yes. Tilda Swinton. Yes. Yeah, and, you know, she's kind of playing this, like... Androgynous. Yes. Mm -hmm. And and honestly, in the comic, uh, 
Lucifer kind of looks like Tilda Swinton almost. Oh, yeah. Like that same kind of like hairstyle and look. It has and- that dynamic. And I think it's funny because the show Lucifer, which is based on the comics. Yes. Took that and was like, what if we make him like a brown haired white man? <laughs> like, you know, generic, like handsome man. And yeah. then the show was like, no, we're taking back the comic. Like, like blonde woman. Yes. So I think that's funny that. This is not, I mean, it could be considered a a diverse casting, but it's actually more true to the comic. Yeah. I also (laughs) just love that they cast Gwendolyn Christie. I know. In this role, because I just love the trajectory of her career. Yes. The fact that she's just this enormous tall woman. Yeah. But after Game of Thrones, like other movies and series have been like, yeah, we have a we have a good role for you. Yeah, we could use a tall woman. Yeah, but like also her presence and like her voice because a lot of this episode requires like really menacing lines delivered. Yeah. Like it's not just her physicality in the role, it's also her voice and her presence too. Yeah, she is excellent as Lucifer. And we get, you know, Dream and and Matthew in the in the show and Matthew's not there in the comic. But Dream kind of going through this crazy world of hell. And this is where we have so much visual effects coming in, right? Yeah. The way that the gates of hell are structured, there's like bodies in it. Yeah. You know, we we see like the palace of hell. It's phenomenal. It's so good. This was the episode that definitely had the most visual effects shots in it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in this whole series, there are a handful of shots that are maybe like not quite as good as they could be. Yeah. But- in this episode, hell looks so good. I remember the shot of him approaching the the castle yeah. of hell and how there's a sense of scale to it mm-hmm. that especially if you're watching it on a television, you still get this sense of awe yeah. about it because it's so massive. It's and like this, twisted looking. Yeah, multi-level angled cathedral with like the pentagram and a door. Woman. And yeah. Yeah, it's like so over the top and it feels, I don't want to say like the comic because it does have a different kind of vibe, mm-hmm. but I would say it is just amazing on its own. Yeah, it's really cool to see all the different landscapes of Hell 2 as Dream is going through. And this is where we get like a little interesting part where Dream is confronted by a woman who is being tormented in Hell. Her name is Nada. And she calls out to Dream and says, please set me free. Like, do you still love me? Do you forgive me? And we just have Dream being like, it has been 10,000 years, Nada. (laughs) Yes, I still love you. No, I have not forgiven you. And then he walks away. And Matthew is kind of like, what was that about? (laughs) In the comic, we don't get anything. But it's sort of a hint of a storyline that is going to come back. But all we know here is that, you know, Dream was involved with this woman and he sent her to hell. Yeah, (laughs) I really love that this is we get it kind of recurring throughout the series that like Dream can be a real cold son of a bitch. Yeah. And kind of uncaring and unsympathetic towards humans. Mm -hmm. And this just kind of being like a nod towards that. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I, I just like this moment a lot. Yeah, Dream eventually ends up finding the demon who has his helm, but the demon makes him challenge him for it. In the comic, it's just Dream versus this demon. In the show, the demon taps Lucifer to be his champion. (laughs) Yep. And we get this battle of wills and minds 
to get the helm back. Ian and I describe this as a rap battle because we don't really know how else to describe well, it. I will say in the comic, it feels like that because they're in a club. Well, it, it, I shouldn't say even rap battle. And like if this was written in the 90s, yeah. or I'm sorry, like more like the early 2000s. I feel like it would be. Yeah. In the comics, it feels more like a slam poetry. Yes. yes. Like read off kind of thing. Because they're in like this like smoky jazz club and they're yeah. like wearing fedoras and it's like real goofy. It's very goofy. I mean, it's like funny in a way, but I'm glad the show didn't go there. The show takes it like way more seriously. Yeah. It's like kind of just this uh, reality war, right? Where they're trying to be different imaginary characters and it becomes this real fight in the end dream ends up winning um and getting his helm back and this sort of leaves things at a at a weird place with lucifer because lucifer clearly wants to keep dream there and dream threatens lucifer enough that he can leave but there's definitely unresolved tension here yeah here's the thing with that like battle though how often do they play this game and and wouldn't you just always be like Oh, I'm anti-life. Yeah. Like, I'm that Just thing. Just go to that. Yeah, it's yeah. like, I'm a snake slithering in the grass. It's like, oh, I'm anti-life. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay. That's like. kind of the end-all, be-all, I know. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's interesting, though, because, like, something about this show is that in a lot of fantasy, there's what's called hard and soft magic systems, mm-hmm. where a hard magic system means there's, like, rigid guidelines and rules into, like, what you can do, what you can't do. Like, do you need energy to, like, do a spell? Do you not? Like, where a soft magic system is, like, it's not really explained, but it's also not really the point. You know what I mean? Like, Lord of the Rings is, I think, a good example of a soft magic system where Gandalf is, like, I don't know what he's doing or where he gets his power or why he can do some things and not others, but that's not the point. And I think that's similar to this series as well like you know the rules of this game what are the rules of this game does it matter but it doesn't matter because it's really about like this storytelling aspect and how they are using the power of words and tales to Mm -hmm. like battle each other and how interesting that is thematically i mean it's going back to the theme of like how words and ideas and dreams have power right and this is what this whole you know comic series and show is about And before we get into, like, episode five, we do need to catch up on a little bit of things here because we have Dream, you know, getting his sand, getting his helm, and next is going to be the ruby. And we're finding out in the background what's been going on with the ruby this whole time. Yeah, We find out that the woman that left the Magus and Alex, like, years and years ago and took the stuff with her, she had the ruby, and she ended up getting this amulet of protection. And she had this son, John D, who used the ruby and got real fucked up with it. <laughs> it went, went real off the rails with it. Yeah. In the comics, he was sent to Arkham Asylum. Yeah. And in the show, he's just kind of in a government, like, holding cell in some building. In the comics, he is like a corpse. He's like a, yeah, like a scabby. Naked thin, man. Naked. He's always naked. Yes, with, like, no <laughs> hair, and he's just very creepy. In the comics, he is he was the character Dr. Destiny. Yeah. Which I know nothing about him. I really don't know anything about DC Comics at all. Mm-hmm. But once again, that being kind of a tie-in to the larger DC universe. Yeah. And we have 
John Dee's mother visit him here, give him this amulet of protection, and die. And the amulet of protection is not a thing in the comics, and I wasn't sure why. And later on, I read because when Dream gets the helm back from the demon, the deal for the amulet of protection that the demon gave was like null. So in the comics, the amulet of protection no longer works because the helm has been claimed. Oh, wait, was that, did you say that was explained in the comics? It was in like volume two in the recap. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's a recap at the beginning of volume two that explains that. But yeah, I was like, why didn't the amulet of protection ever come back? Because the show is like, oh, the amulet of protection still works. Yes. And that's how John ends up escaping the prison is because if anyone tries to hurt him, they explode. Well, yeah, and we also get a more visual representation of like how it exactly protects him. Yeah. It explodes people if they try to do anything to you. Yeah, and in the show as well, you know, John D ends up getting this woman rosemary to drive him to where um the ruby is and in the end he ends up giving the amulet of protection to her because she's a nice person and in the show or in the comic he just kills her yeah that was uh kind of unnecessary i i don't know yeah like he's a villain i get it and he's doing a villainous thing and he's like a psychopath so i'm not like, oh, why didn't they make him more relatable? But I just thought it was more interesting when he gave her the amulet of protection in the I show. I did, too. I was like, wow. Because, I mean, in the show, too, they're having this kind of continuous debate. And it's a bit in the comic, too, about, like, ethics and what it means to lie to somebody mm-hmm. and what it means to be a good person. And, yeah. uh, you know, he keeps saying Rosemary's a good person. But, like, is he going to kill her? Change his mind on that mm-hmm. because she's trying to, like call the police on him. But I do, I I agree. I think it's interesting that he, he gives her the amulet at the end. So then we get to episode five, my least favorite episode. And also one of my least favorite volumes in the series where John D goes to this 24 hour diner and he fucks with the people there and also ends up using the Ruby to fuck up the world as well. Yeah. It's kind of, uh, you're watching this social group in the diner. Mm hmm. Slowly being manipulated by the Ruby to be more like truthful, but also like primal in Mm -hmm. what they want, uh, whether it's like sexual or violence. Aggression. And I like that this is like a microcosm of just like the rest of the insanity that John D is causing and like the rest of the world. We get like little cutaways to television sets Mm -hmm. in the comic and show that are kind of like talking about oh my God, all this other shit that's going on in the world. Yeah. So I I do like the structure and the way this story is told, how it's like a global catastrophe, but it's like a small stage. Yeah, it is a weird vibe, though. Mm -hmm. I think the show maybe struggles a bit in this episode. I don't know. The tone is really weird. Yeah, yeah. We just And it it is kind of interesting getting to know these characters, right? We have Bet which is this waitress who, you know, writes these stories and is all really interested in the lives of all these regular customers that come in. And like in the show, she's really proud of setting up this couple that comes into the restaurant and like wants to do the same for others. Um, And we get to see like kind of how their lives all interact with each other. Right. And as things get more chaotic and crazy, we see like all these secrets revealed in them and also these like animalistic parts of themselves that come out. Yeah, I find it really interesting because like the comic is way more 
scattered with this, I would say, because it kind of goes, it's a 24-hour diner, right? Yeah. And the comic kind of uses this convention in kind of a quirky way where it's like hour one, hour two, Mm -hmm. hour 12, hour 13, and each hour... John D is kind of like making something different happen. Yeah. And it does, there is an escalation to it where it is going off the rails more, but it's a little bit more frantic. Yeah. Whereas the show, I think, kind of creates this more consistent swelling of emotions and um, lustfulness and yeah. everything else going on. It kind yeah. of has more of a trajectory. We see the characters that are like, oh my god, are they gonna fuck? And then all these characters end up fucking my, and you're like, oh my god. My notes were just like, oh my god, are these two gonna fuck? And I was like, oh my god, are these two gonna fuck? <laughs> it's like, oh my god, these two are gonna fuck. And yeah. I do, I thought that idea was kind of like funny in a way because like you have these pairings at the beginning. You have the waitress who's kind of secretly like sleeping with the cook. Yeah. You have this couple that works together that is frequenting the diner. Mm-hmm. And then this young couple that the waitress is trying to set up together. Yeah. So these like obvious like pairings with each other. But then later the young man is with the woman from the one couple and they're yeah. getting along. And then like the guy from that couple is with the cook. Yeah. And they're going to fuck. And then the waitress is with like the young woman who we knew she was a lesbian, but yeah. like not the waitress at all. <laughs> and it just kind of like... Nothing makes me more like what's going on than like a shift in like whether characters are going to fuck or not in the show. (laughs) Yeah. And that part was interesting. And we're finding out all these things about these characters. But then it quickly ends up devolving into violence and mutilation and torture, Mm -hmm. which I just hate. And I really disliked reading this in the comic. And I really disliked watching this. I'm like really bad with gruesome scenes i just can't handle it and also it's like really hard for me to watch something like this happening like emotionally so it was getting too much for me um and they just end up killing themselves they just kill themselves there was a shot that i really liked though partway through this episode where as everyone's fucking john d kind of goes into the back kitchen for ice cream. Yeah. And it's one continuous tracking shot as he's like, kind of just like walking around everyone, kind of like casually observing, like literally everyone's having sex in the diner. Yeah. And it's kind of like the music is like real moody and he's just kind of like meandering around and like helping himself to food. (laughs) And at this point in the TV program, it's talking about the the pandas in some facility that haven't had sex for years (laughs) or finally like reproducing. (laughs) So there's kind of some humor involved too but yeah yeah, once it began to get into like the violence it was like i get the message it's trying to create that like oh this is our actual nature and what we like secretly want to do to each other Mm -hmm. but that isn't always a message that is what you want to digest yeah it's a it's hard to watch we eventually though get dream who recovers from the like blast of power that knocked him unconscious from the ruby. Yeah. He joins John D here and is like, hey, listen, man, like, you got to give me back the ruby. Like, this is crazy, <laughs> right? Like, stop. Come like, on. Could, like, look around. <laughs> yeah. Um, But John D refuses to. He wants to, like, basically destroy the world at this point. Yeah. Destroy Dream. And they end up going into the Dream world and kind of having this, like, psychic kind of dream showdown. Yeah. And John D thinks that if he destroys the ruby, he will destroy Dream and he will become the Dream Lord. Unfortunately, this just releases all the power that Dream put into the ruby and gives it back to Dream. And so Dream is able to kind of take over, stop everything that's been happening with the ruby, take 
John D. back to his, you know, Arkham Asylum or government facility or wherever he was and and sort of restore things. I do think this is really interesting, though, because it's this idea that he created this ruby as a tool for him in the dreaming, but it ended up actually sucking away a lot of his power. Yeah, I've kind of been like trying to think and process that like narrative since reading it. Yeah, I don't know if they really come back to this enough, but I thought it was interesting when I read it because he talks about being more powerful now than he has in a long time because it was part of himself that he had kind of locked away in this power, in this ruby. Yeah, And so I wonder if like parts of him changing and growing is maybe because of getting this aspect Mm. of his personality back. That's interesting. Yeah, well, I also wondered, like, is it the same thing with the helm, too? Or, like, well, his bag of sand seems like more, like, something that he kind of needs. That's something, like, he created. But, like, what about the helm if he destroys that? Yeah. But does he need the helm? It doesn't seem like the role of all these items is, once again, (laughs) this soft magic system where, like, none of it's, like, really explained, but it doesn't also really matter. Well, and a lot of this comes from the previous Sandmans, right? In DC Comics, right? They had the helm. They had the ruby. They had Did the sand. Did they? Yes. Okay, see, I didn't realize that part of it. Yeah, and, like, Neil Gaiman ends up kind of retconning these previous Sandman versions yeah. in various ways throughout these two volumes here. But maybe he's trying to, like, work with but also kind of do away with some of this, like, stuff that was left over from the previous Sandmans. Yeah, he really just wanted to do his own thing, but he wanted uh, DC to fund it all. So yeah. he was like, yeah, I'll make a uh, Sandman adaptation. Yeah, and- oh, no, the ruby is destroyed. Oh, wait, he doesn't really need to put this helm on his head like yeah oh what the previous sandman was a figment of people's imagination that's fine yeah exactly (laughs) the one thing that's interesting about the end of this diner episode though is that all the damage that john d did to the world including all those people that were murdered at the diner is not fixed no it just exists but i also kind of admire i should say admire respect but it doesn't come back to it no, not really. Yeah, because in the next one, the next issue, everything just seems fine. Yeah. Which is weird because, like, what actually was going on in the rest of the world was kind of, like, vague. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, what really? Were we on the brink of nuclear war? Like, yeah. what exactly happened Is half the here? population dead? Like, what? Yeah. Like, on one hand, I respect that, like, Neil Gaiman was like, yeah, this isn't just, like, fixed magically at the end. Yeah. But then again. What did happen? Yeah. yeah. What What were the repercussions of this? Yeah, in this next episode, we kind of have Dream trying to figure out what he's about now that he got his stuff back. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, I don't know what my purpose in life is. And he reconnects with his sister, Death. Yes, he kind of laments to her about how his mission to reclaim all his lost stuff after he was imprisoned, now that that's done, he doesn't feel like he has a purpose anymore. Yeah. And he's kind of like lost. And Death is like, listen, First of all, you're dumb for not coming to me sooner. <laughs> Secondly, why don't we just like hang for the day and yeah. like maybe you'll get inspired again. Mm-hmm. So it's it's dream and death kind of hanging out for the day. I love their dynamic because death is so it's it's like perfect like grumpy sunshine pairing right she is just so happy i love when they're like walking through a farmer's market and she's like "Ooh, an apple do you want one he's like no i don't want a fucking apple (laughs) also every man wants to get with her i know they're like hey that apple's for free and she's like what and she's like i'll see you later (laughs) also um oh my god the actor who plays dream 
Tom uh, Tom Sturgis. Sturgis. Okay. Yeah. I couldn't remember how to pronounce it. Um, he is so good. He is. And we haven't talked about him yet, but we haven't. He just does such a great job of being moody, but you getting like glimpses of his personality. Yes. The my favorite part, I think, of <laughs> of the whole show from him comes in this episode when he's feeding the pigeons. Yeah. And a little girl runs past <laughs> and scares them away. And he just stares daggers at her. <laughs> like he is so mad at this tiny little girl. And it's so funny. But he does such a good job of feeling like this, like this endless eternal disillusioned yeah person that's kind of like seen it all and like doesn't much care about anything anymore yeah but and his voice is so good too Mm -hmm. you know it's one of those rare instances where i saw he was cast and i'm usually not someone who's like oh they have to look just like they do in the comics yeah but i was like does he have kind of too round of a baby face yeah. to play Dream? He like, needs a stronger jaw. He does have cheekbones mm-hmm. that you can see, but his jaw <laughs> is maybe too round. Uh, so I was like almost a little hesitant at first, but like the moment he started speaking, yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's You're him. You're like, all right, I'm into this. I'm, I'm sold. <laughs> that's him. It's, it's very, very a vibe, yeah. right? Like <laughs> yes. I'm into it. Um, and... We see Death kind of going about her job, right? Collecting souls. And this issue is called The Sound of Her Wings. And when she brings people into the afterlife, we hear the flapping of wings. And this mm-hmm. is kind of echoed in the pigeons that De- yeah. or that Dream is, like, feeding, etc. Um, But I love what Death says. She says that, like, in the end, people just want, like, a nice face or a kind word or something. Yeah. And this sort of reminds Dream... Of his duty to humans and to humanity and that he is there to serve them and that he needs to kind of be re-energized in his role as Dream um, and stop worrying about all his stupid shit. Yeah, and I also just love, it's a very sweet kind of warming idea of death. Yes. The idea that you're greeted in a kind of friendly, open way, Mm -hmm. even if you die in a kind of like horrifying accident or something. Yeah. And yeah, it's a very optimistic idea, but it's still one that I appreciate and really like. Mm -hmm. And also the idea of death kind of being this very happy chipper person. Yeah. It's great. It's very good. This episode kind of shifts into like a different half. And this is, as you can probably tell if you've watched the show, this is a different issue of the comic too that happens later. But we see Death and Dream in like the 1300s in England in this tavern. And clearly Death has dragged Dream here, right? She's like, you need to associate (laughs) with the humans more. Like, get out a bit. We should go out. And he's like so grumpy. And he looks so emo in his like period (laughs) outfit. I love it so much. (laughs) I I mean, I just love all the attention to detail and all the outfits and everything throughout (laughs) this episode and in the comics as well. And just seeing Dream in this like... Like you said, stuffy outfit. 1300s <laughs> stuffy outfit, just being like annoyed. Being is so grumpy. But in this issue and episode, they uh, discover a man at the bar kind of boasting about how he'll never die because he just will refuse to. And that yeah. will be enough. And death and dream get the idea to grant this man mortality is kind of like a fun experiment. Yeah. And dream when he tells the man says, meet me at this bar in a hundred years and the issue and episode are their recurring meeting every hundred years from 1387 I think Mm -hmm. or 89 
1489 to 1589 up until the modern day and you see how they change and kind of like how the times change and mm-hmm. all these other great aspects. Yeah, I love this so much. Um, Hob slash Rob, who's the man who's granted immortality. Yes. You know, is super psyched about living forever, right? <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh, I'm into it. And like, I think Dream was expecting him to be disillusioned by life. And we do get a part that I think is very interesting where he seems like he's at the top of his game, right? Yeah. Everything's going well for him. He has a wife and a son. He's doing well financially. And then the next hundred years, like, he's lost it all, right? Yes. But even when he's lost it all, he still refuses to die. Yeah, there's this great moment where he's just going <laughs> on about how shitty things are, how he's a drunk, how yeah. he has nothing. And, like, part of the agreement is that, like, if he wants to die, he can. yeah. But if he does it, he'll keep living. And Dream is like, so are you, like, yielding to death? Mm-hmm. Like, will you uh, invite death? And then he's like, are you kidding? He's like, I have so much to live for. <laughs> As he's, like, wearing, like, nothing but, like, rags. rags on his body. And he has, like, not a penny to his name. And I love that, like, insane logic. Yeah. But you kind of wonder if all people would be like that to a degree. Yeah. That... You know, we get some we do get stories of people who live forever mm-hmm. and it's usually some kind of cautionary tale yeah. about like, oh, this is actually really bad and death is like a really important part of life. Mm-hmm. And I do think those stories are interesting and important, but I like this take on it where a person, if they could live forever, would. It's just like, yeah, and whatever. And going to like make it work. <laughs> and even when it does suck, they're going to still just choose to live forever. Yeah, I, I love this dynamic. And we see different characters kind of sprinkled through. We see uh, Chaucer and Shakespeare who kind yeah. of pass through this tavern. And we find out later that Dream possibly made a deal with Shakespeare. Maybe we'll find out about that later. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we also get a scene in the comics and in the or just in the show, I'm sorry. With or is it in the comics too? With uh, Constantine? Yeah, yeah, no, that Constantine part is in the comics. In the as comics well. too, I couldn't remember. But like Constantine's ancestor trying to capture Dream in yeah. this moment, and that obviously not working out. Yes, I also love all of the like social commentary sprinkled throughout this episode, especially in the comic. There's just so many funny moments like of tavern talk of people. Like there's a woman in the 1300s who's going to be like, oh, like the Pope is doing this and this thing's going on. The end of the world is right around the corner. (laughs) Like mark my words. Am I right? Yeah. And they're like, oh, people don't want to work anymore. Like nobody (laughs) has like a good work ethic. This is like in the 1500s. (laughs) I I think my favorite joke though came... From at the very beginning, you catch a bit about a guy telling a joke and like you only it's like the, the tail end of a joke about like a vicar reaching under a woman's robes oh, and her yeah. going like, oh, you're hunting for rabbits again. <laughs> Something like that. And then at the very end, when it's like 1980s, he's back at the tavern and someone is telling the exact same joke. <laughs> And I thought that was so funny. It was like the same phrasing and everything that like a joke hasn't changed in like 700 years. And I, and I just love the idea that like people are talking about the same stuff. Yes. Right. And this like thing that seems like, oh, it's only true in this moment is true throughout history. Yeah. That ultimately like technology will change, mm-hmm. but like human nature doesn't really change. Yeah. And I, I think that is so it's more true than it isn't. And I love its depiction of that in this comic. Yeah. It's 
it's very funny and, and also feels very true. Yeah. I like, too, the evolution of Hob slash Rob and Dream's friendship, right? And we have this moment, like, in the 1800s where... Rob is like, listen, you come here every hundred years because we're friends. And Dream is super offended by this. <laughs> He's how, like, how dare you? Especially in the comic, he like immediately stands up and <laughs> throws a fit. Because he's like, I am an eternal. Like, I don't need a mortal's friendship. <laughs> you dare. Yeah, he like storms off. And then it's kind of left up to like, well, we'll see if you're here in a hundred years. And mm-hmm. if you are, we're friends. Yeah. And it's interesting because in the comic, he does show up again. The next hundred yeah. years. And they're kind of and he's kind of like, hey, friend. And it's the two of them being like, yeah, we're friends. But in the show, the in the 80s, Dream is still captured. So he can't make their hundred yearly. Meeting. Yeah. So it's like, oh, maybe we're not friends. And like Rob is feeling sad. Rob was waiting for him. I know. And, oh, my God. Yeah. He just, just felt so bad for him. I know. But then Dream, you know, in the present day, now that he's been freed, I guess Rob just kept hanging out around that <laughs> he bar. He bought it, I think, because they were talking about it being like torn down. And then I think he bought. Oh, he bought no, a new one. I think it's a different one. Because yeah. the tavern was like closed and condemned because Dream true. goes there. Yeah. Um, but like it's obviously close enough that Dream finds him. And they do have that same kind of meeting about like. Hey, what's up, friend? Yeah. And it's kind of a sweet moment. It is really sweet. And I you're seeing it. and you're seeing how Dream has grown too. Like yes. pr- probably in large part due to his capture and mm-hmm. like the stuff that he went through and he's like reflecting on his life. So. Yeah, and he's like, Yeah, we are friends and you are important to me. Yeah. So we get this little interlude here in the comics where we get an issue that goes in the backstory of Nada and Dream. Nada is the woman that was imprisoned in hell for 10,000 years. Yeah. And we find out what happened with them. But we're going to skip this part because I have a feeling this might come back in the show later and we can discuss it at that time. Also, we have so much more to discuss. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, I, I will say I did like that comic issue a lot. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm sure they will adapt it later and I would love to see it. Yeah. Let's talk about episode seven of the show here. And this is a shifting in subject matter in tone in plot in the show and in the comics where this is the second volume of the comics and this is more of a linear story whereas before it was kind of episode by episode yeah even though his mission to reclaim his things were all kind of connected for the most part it still felt very like segmented like yeah. oh in this one he's in hell this is the diner issue mm-hmm. this is more of a continuous flowing story yeah we get the introduction of rose walker who we find out is a dream vortex which is something that naturally occurs but is actually really destructive to the dreaming and can destroy a world. And then we also find out um, about her family, her grandmother, great grandmother, Unity. And then she's looking for her brother who has been kind of lost in the foster system. Yes. Oh, also uh, a bunch of dream creatures that are supposed to like live in the dreaming world have escaped, the Corinthian being one of them. But there's also these other dream creatures that uh, dream is kind of trying to track down. Yeah, they had never returned since Dream was released from his prison. Yeah. So he's, even though he needs to handle Rose, who is the Dream Vortex, mm-hmm. even though he needs to, like, solve that issue, like, in an kill uncertain her. way, kill her, <laughs> he wants to use her first because he believes she will draw these stray dreams and nightmares towards her and he can better, more easily capture them. Yeah, and in the comics... 
Rose's mother is alive. And as they discover that Unity is their grandmother or great-grandmother, we have her mom kind of being a part of this. And then Rose is looking for Jed, her brother, on her own. But in the show, Rose's mother has died at this point. So when she discovers that Unity is her family, it definitely feels like more of a connection because it's like the last thing she has. Mm -hmm. And Unity is actually helping fund Rose's search of her brother, Jed. Yes. So Rose goes back to, we get a uh, kind of a, what would you call it? A prologue at the beginning of the episode, which is their family kind of being like pulled apart. Mm -hmm. And this was in Florida. And so she returns. It's Florida, right? Yeah. Yeah. She returns to Florida in her search for Jed and she finds a, like a, 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 bed and breakfast to stay in. Yeah. And boy, is it a collection <laughs> of quirky characters. It's the doll's house, Ian. It has Hal, the owner, who's a drag queen on the side. We have Barbie and Ken, the yuppiest couple you've ever seen. Yes. We have Zelda and Chantal, the sister lovers of spiders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Their, their relationship is uncertain. Yes. Yeah, so... This is interesting to me because, like, the tone of what the world is like, the regular world in this show and comic, is kind of fluctuating. Some things feel more grounded. Mm -hmm. Other things feel very exaggerated and weird. Like, things in the diner episode at the beginning felt really quirky or, like, maybe campy and cheesy. Yeah. But... In my mind at that point, I'm like, okay, they're just setting up a contrast for, like, the debauchery that's about to take place later, right? Yeah, yeah. But here we get a similar feel where it feels very heightened and kind of weird Weird. over the top. And in my mind, I was like, okay, what's the twist going to be? Is Mm -hmm. she, as the dream vortex, is she creating these people? And that's why they're, like, weird, (laughs) like, recreations of, like, toys or whatever they are. Mm -hmm. No, they're just... They're just weird. They're just weird. They're all... They're just a collection of misfits. And we have Gilbert in the attic. And Gilbert in the attic. But something that I think is interesting that this kind of, like is unique to this kind of adaptation from comic to show or movie is that it can be very faithful, but what is kind of what feels more grounded in a comic feels more campy in a show. Mm -hmm. Like I think a good comparison is like um, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. Yeah. Like so many of those moments from those movies feel like they could have been pulled right out of comics. Mm-hmm. And there's a campiness to that. There's like a quality to that. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's bad, but it's like an aesthetic. It doesn't feel it's like... It's a choice. Yeah, it doesn't feel grounded in reality. And I feel similarly about this, where it's, you know, reading the comic, I don't know, you just kind of think like, okay, these are weird characters in a house that mm-hmm. she and she lives with them. Yeah. And you kind of just accept it. But in the show... It feels out of place. It feels like something's up. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if it works as well in the show for that reason. Yeah. Like, it feels odd. Like, I don't feel like I have a sense for what, like, the normal world is in the show, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. It's it's sort of like an odd tonal shift too in the show because Mm -hmm. the show doesn't have the benefit of being like, okay, we're in a new season. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. the comics is like, hey, we're in a new volume now. Like, things are different. Yeah. You know, it's it's a shift to you. And so I think the show does struggle a little bit in transitioning from the first half to the second half here. Yeah. And also, like, 
I can accept like, okay, these different realms of dreaming and of hell and like all these quirky like nightmares that come out of it. Like, yeah, those are all weird and all over the place. But I kind of wish like Earth was like a little bit more normal. Yeah, recognizable. Yeah, maybe. but maybe the fact that this is like originally rooted in the DC universe and superheroes and yeah. all that shit. Maybe that inherently like made the comics more quirky in the real world and like, but I don't know if it translates as well into the series. That's true. That's a good point about it being the DC universe. Yeah, there is no like normal grounded reality this is DC. in the comics. <laughs> yeah, the regular world still has fucking Superman and Martian Manhunter. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the wild and wacky, let's talk about what the Corinthian has been up to here <laughs> because let me tell you, I love this man. He is so he good. He is so awful and terrible, but I love him. Yeah, I, <laughs> I completely agree. Like the man who plays him in the show is perfect. Yes, he is phenomenal. He is so good. He's just charming. Yeah. Everyone seems into him. Oh, yeah. Like, his sexual energy is off the charts. His queer energy specifically. Yeah, I love this part where he's, like, trying to track down Rose and he ends up, like, fucking her house sitter. <laughs> but he doesn't kill him. No, I love that subversion. <laughs> yeah. Here's my theory, Adina. Yeah. I think he has his own personal... Um, rule of not killing your gays. <laughs> you know how, like, the, in in television, there's yeah. that like terrible trope of like killing your gays. Like, there's yeah. beloved queer characters in in shows, and then they get killed for no reason. I think like the Corinthian is aware of that, and he's like, you know what? We've had enough of that. I have like a no killing gay people policy. At least in the show. At in, least yes, in the show. In the comics, he's killing a lot of gays. <laughs> he is. <laughs> but he is being tracked down by these serial killers because they want him to attend their serial killer convention. And he's also looking for Rose because he knows that she's a dream vortex and he's actually wanting to use her and her power to maybe take down dream. And this is only in the show. In the comics, it's kind of like what Ian was saying earlier that these dream characters are being drawn to Rose kind of unintentionally just because of her power. Yes. Let's get into episode eight. Yes. Rose is using her powers. Mm -hmm. She's discovering that she is the vortex. And what's interesting is she kind of has more of a, um, I don't say personable relationship with Dream. Yeah. But she talks to him more. Mm -hmm. They interact. She kind of dreams herself into his castle. Mm -hmm. And I like this dynamic a lot. I like her being more active in the story compared to the comics. Yeah, and it's also, this episode is about Jed, her brother, and what's happening with him and figuring all of this out. But yeah, I really like Rose kind of interacting with Dream. He ends up telling her that she's a Dream Vortex. In the show, he asks her to use that power to try to find her brother. Yeah. And she ends up kind of traveling through the dreams of everybody in the B&B on her way to try to find Jed. And then... Dream is also trying to figure out where Jed is in the dreaming, too. Yes. I have to give a huge shout out once again to the artwork in the comics here. Yeah. Because everyone in the house that she's living with, Ken and Barbie mm -hmm. and the sisters, uh, they're all dreaming and she's traveling through their dreams. And each of their dreams has a very distinctive visual style. And not only that, but the way they're... Uh, uh, speech bubbles are lettered. Yeah. Uh, I love Barbie has these like really absurd fantasy dreams. Yes. And so her type is like black letter or mm -hmm. like old calligraphy. Yeah. Whereas Ken has these like weird sex dreams that are like. Machine. Yeah. Like very bizarre. And they're all like 
different to varying degrees. And I think it's such a good use of like just the art, the the comic medium and yeah. the variety of like type. What and you can do with it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it does that really well here. Yeah, and here we have kind of like a big divergence with Jed's story, right? Yes. Here we have Jed. He is in the foster care system. He's being taken care of these by these people who he calls his aunt and uncle. We don't really know if they're his aunt or uncle or no. not. Um, but they're abusing him. They keep him locked in a cellar, and there are rats down there. It's really awful. He's not being fed. And he's escaping into this dream world fantasy that he has where he's the superhero or he's interacting with superheroes and it's his only escape. Yes. In the comic, the there are and and he has been his dreams have been separated from the rest of the dreaming. Yeah. Dream is aware of this. He knows something's up with this mm-hmm. and he's kind of trying to investigate it. And we discover that a nightmare dream character in both versions has kind of like invaded his mind yeah and has kind of isolated him in the dreaming mm-hmm. in the comic it are it, it's two nightmares named brute and glob yeah which i love their design i mean it's classic like tall monster short monster yeah. looking <laughs> and in the show it is a single nightmare or dream called galt yes and their motivations are very different too yeah brute and glob are trying to create their own dreaming world and they've have kidnapped a ghost named Hector. <laughs> uh-huh. And they have him being the Sandman, a superhero uh-huh. in this dream. And Jed appears in it. And also uh, this ghost's wife is there. And she's pregnant. And her name is Lyda Hall. And this ghost's name is Hector Hall. And you're like, what the fuck is happening? This is so just... Bizarre. I have no idea what the and fuck is going on. And here's the thing, on. Ian. This is another retcon. I, I absolutely like this one screams at you that this is like Neil Gaiman kind of having his own fun way with like pre-established DC characters. Yeah. Hector Hall being one iteration of the Sandman in previous DC comics. And he's kind of trying to explain that like, oh, no, he's not the real Sandman. He's just a ghost trapped in this dream world inside this little boy's mind. Like, it's so bizarre. I do think it's kind of interesting when you're reading the comic, but when you reading the comic, but when you think back on it, I just don't think it makes any sense. No, it's so just unnecessarily complicated. Mm-hmm. Also, it's never really and a little bit in the show too. like, why is the one dream latching itself onto Jed who happens to be the brother of, of the, the vortex, vortex, but like their plots are like totally separate from anything that's going on with Rose. I know. And on top of that, like, yes, this preg- this woman who got pregnant in the mind of a child with her dead husband. I don't know, Ian. Oh, Not good. God. It's <laughs> so it's so much to try to, like, process. Yeah. In the show, Galt, the person who has invaded Jed's mind, is there because she's tired of being a nightmare and she actually wants to be a good dream for people. Yeah. And she sees that Jed is suffering that, like, he's being abused daily, and so she actually creates this perfect dream world that he can escape to, and he can be the hero, and she's trying to do a good thing. Yes. And we have Dream confronting this manifestation in Jed's mind, right, in both versions. In the comic, he defeats Brute and Glob, sends them back to the darkness, and ends up being like, hey, Hector, you're dead. You need to be dead now. And they just, like, snaps his finger. Sends his ghost on its way, and then... 
brings Lyda Hall, his wife, his pregnant wife, back to the real world and is like, hey, sorry, lady. Also, um, that baby is going to be mine later. <laughs> yeah. You had him in the in the dreaming. And yeah. so like that, even though they weren't connected to the dreaming. I know. Shouldn't it belong to like Brute and Glob? I know. <laughs> <laughs> but in the comics, you know, Dream ends up finding Galt in Jed's mind confronts her. You mean in the show. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. In it's the okay. Show, <laughs> in the show, I'm getting confused. Dream confronts Galt. She confesses that she wants to be a dream and not a nightmare anymore, and he doesn't want to listen to her. But at the same time, Lyda is a character that is Rose's friend in the show. Yeah. And she's been having these dreams of her dead husband. And in these dreams she ends up getting pregnant. And this is tied more to the fact that Rose is the dream vortex. Yes. And Lyda's proximity to Rose is like giving power to her dreams so that this would happen. Yeah, I think this is a much necessary cleaning up yeah. of the story. I'm, I'm kind of impressed they still managed to include Lyda mm-hmm. and this like subplot of her getting pregnant from her ghost husband Yeah, in a way that's like way less confusing. However, in the show, if I'm being like honest i like was not into lyda's story no or her acting yeah like or her performance in it yeah like i don't know like i don't want to say she's a bad actress or anything but like it was so kind of sincere and kind of sappy and Mm -hmm. like her being with her husband and being also the writing got a little cringy at points like yeah she's talking our introduction to this is she's talking to a man on a plane And we don't know who he is or anything. And they're chatting and she's saying like, oh, but things aren't good. And he's like, why is that? And she's like, because I'm talking to my dead husband on the (laughs) plane. You're like, dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) And she like wakes up from her dream. And I'm like, all right. The the reveal that she's talking to her dead husband and she knows it is like very overdone, I think. But the same thing happens in the comic ultimately, which is that Hector, the dream or the ghost is banished to be dead for real. Yes. And then Dream brings Lyda back to the real world and is like, hey, that baby is mine later. Like, mm-hmm. he's part of the dreaming. Like, I will come back for him. Um, Which is that ever fully result? Because, okay. Yeah, this comes back later in a big way. Oh, no, I meant in, in um, okay, because in the show, things at the end feel like they're resolved between Rose and Dream. Yeah. But the part of him wanting Lyda's child yeah. felt like it wasn't addressed. And it, I yeah. and I was like, Rose, do you know if he's still going to go after Lyda's baby? Like, yeah. it feels like you should check about that because that seemed like a Are big deal. Are you concerned? Deal. Yeah, because yeah. I was confused if that was supposed to be implied that that was resolved mm-hmm. or if that was left. I just mean like it was left ambiguous in a not great way, I think. Yeah, I think we'll find out more for sure later but jed even though he escapes his aunt and uncle gets picked up by the corinthian (laughs) so he's in a worse spot than he was before (laughs) here's a big difference though in the comic jed just gets like thrown in the trunk of a car yeah but corinthian's car in the yeah in the (laughs) corinthian's car but in the show the corinthian's like let's go get ice cream yeah champ yeah like buddy yeah and the corinthian chicken fingers yeah (laughs) the corinthian's like having a good time with him he's like do you ever notice people only use your name when they're like about to yell at you and (laughs) jed's like yeah and then he like is like hey you want to drive and nah i'm just kidding (laughs) like their dynamics great and of course we have the corinthian's energy just being so good in the show (laughs) (laughs) like why is the corinthian such a good dad i don't know ian (laughs) but i I love it 
Uh, all right, we're here in episode nine, and this is where we're exploring a lot of the dynamics between Dream and Lucianne, the librarian in the dream yeah. world. And then we also get kind of the setting of the serial killer convention here. Uh, let's first talk about Dream and Lucianne, and this is exclusive to the show. We have Dream kind of feeling like Lucianne has been taking on more responsibility since he was captured. And being like, no, I'm in charge. Yeah. You go back to the library where you belong. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't need your opinion. I don't need your help. Like, I'm my own person. And we get hints where she's talking to um, other characters and they're like, he's always been like this. I think it's interesting to the fact that they cast Lucian in the show as a black woman Mm -hmm. and the fact that her role is being undervalued. Yes. And that the white man who is the boss is kind of like, (laughs) you can run along and like, you know, go back to your library or whatever. Mm. Like, I feel like that was probably very intentional. But we have this resolution where he eventually starts to realize that he needs her help. Yeah. And that he wants to have her input and values it and actually feels bad for being mean to her earlier. And he also feels bad for banishing Galt into the darkness and in fact remakes her into the dream that she wanted to be. And I think this episode is the most change that we've seen in dream and also an acknowledgement of like what he used to be and what he is now. And I think it really helps us root for him Yes. Because when he is so cruel to Lucianne and when he's so cruel to Galt, too, Mm -hmm. and she just wants to be, she doesn't want to be a nightmare anymore. And I'm like, oh, that's so sad. (laughs) I know. And he's so mean to her. But then we see him change his mind and it's so beautiful. I'm trying to remember the line in the show. I forget what character says it, but they were like, whoa, he said he like might have made a mistake. (laughs) That's like the most he's ever gone or the closest he's ever come to apologizing for anything. Yeah. (laughs) And I loved that. Yeah. So just acknowledging his growth and that we might see new things from him. And I really like this. Yeah. And just giving a kind of more constant through line for this first season of the show of him. Yeah. Probably learning and changing from his experiences. Yes. And then we also get um, Rose and Gilbert trying to find Jed. And they end up at this hotel. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens to be the hotel that is having the serial convention, a.k.a. the serial killer convention. (laughs) Adina, I didn't like this when I first read the comic. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't like it now. What? You don't in the like comic it? Or, like, okay, I like the idea of it in a bubble. I just don't think it fits with this series. Yeah. Because the Sandman as a whole is a story about stories, right? Mm-hmm. And pretty much every issue and episode is some kind of variation on that, right? Yeah. Like, his battle with Lucifer is a story battle. Mm-hmm. Even the diner episode, which I know neither of us are a huge fan of, feels like this microcosm story of these people that's representing the larger event going on globally. Yeah. Like, everything feels like it's a kind of story Mm -hmm. or about some kind of story. And then it's like, what if serial killers had a convention? But it's so funny, Ian. I love it. (laughs) There are are aspects that are funny. I just think it feels like so random. Mm -hmm. I think it could have worked better. And they allude to this idea that the Corinthian. Inspired this. Yes, that everyone is like, there's like more serial killers because the Corinthian inspired them. Mm -hmm. I think if like the Corinthian was the guy who actually like 
organized this or was like more directly responsible. Yeah. It would have like fit more or at least felt more like purposeful. Mm -hmm. But the Corinthians responsibility for it feels more like an afterthought. Yeah. And instead it's just like this just it's so random. See, I like it, Ian. (laughs) Okay. 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 I like it. I think it's funny and weird and out there. And I think it kind of works and feels really random but perfect that they would end up at this murder convention and honestly just the part when Gilbert is like trying to find like Jed and is wandering from like panel discussion to panel discussion (laughs) is slowly getting more and more confused and alarmed by the topics of discussion oh I love some of these aspects of it like I love the panel that's like women in murder and they're just like we're tired of being considered black widows and only using our sexuality (laughs) we're killers too I love the religion one oh my god I know about the religious fanatic who kills for god and the guy's like I don't want to be associated with this There's definitely, like, a lot of funny aspects to this. Yeah. It just still feels so out of nowhere for me. Yeah, I I agree. It's a little little bit weird and out there. And, And, like... And maybe that ties back into the idea of, like, I don't know what the real world, like, grounded world is supposed to be. Like... (laughs) The, the fact that this is a place that would have a murder convention, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, of course, like, Rose in the comics ends up being attacked by one of the convention attendees. Funland. Funland, who is someone who... Uh, murders children. Murders children in Disney World. And in the show... Actually, Jed is the one who's targeted by Funland. Yes. And Rose ends up trying to save him, and they're being attacked by Funland, and the Corinthian ends up saving them. In the show. In the show. In the comic, she ends up summoning uh, Morpheus. Dream. Dream. Uh, because Gilbert gave her his name. Yeah. And it's like, if you need help, like, say this name out loud. And so while she's being attacked, she summons Morpheus, who saves her. I think it's interesting that the name Morpheus is used to, like, summon him specifically. Yeah, that is true, because he goes by several names. Yeah. But it, they, they use that name to summon him. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a couple different issues they do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on to episode 10, we have the re- resolution of this arc with Rose as the Vortex, right? And Dream is also resolving tracking down the Corinthian and this serial killer convention as well. Yes. Uh, it kind of begins on a high note where the Corinthian, who's been made the uh, guest of honor at the convention, is giving his speech. Yeah. His his much his keynote address. His keynote address <laughs> to all the uh, convention attendees. This is pulled almost directly from the comics into mm-hmm. the show about the American dream paved <laughs> with gold and blood or We're whatever. We're entrepreneurs in a growing field. <laughs> <laughs> and Dream interrupts the speech to kind of say your version of what reality and what life is is warped and twisted, and this is not what I created you for. Yeah. So this confrontation in the comic is wrapped up pretty quickly, just where Dream is like, you know, kind of snapping his fingers and disintegrating the Corinthian, essentially. Yeah. And saying, like, I'll remake you later to be less, like, petty. Yeah. Uh, But in the show, this is a little bit more heightened because – the Corinthian 
has gained more power because of Rose's presence, which yeah. was kind of his whole plan. Yeah. And Dream is losing power. Mm-hmm. And the Corinthian has kind of told Rose that, like, listen, Dream is going to kill you. Yeah, you should be on my side. Yes, I'm here to try to protect you. And together we can kill Dream and you can, like, go on living. Mm-hmm. And so Rose, who is asleep at this point in her room, is kind of involved in this, like, psychic encounter. Yeah. And the Corinthian is gaining power and Dream is losing it rose is able to control things enough to be like the walls of the dream are going back up mm-hmm. corinthian like you don't have power anymore dream i'll leave it to you and dream is able to like use this moment to finish the corinthian off yeah and then he also takes this opportunity to shatter the collective dream that all these serial killers have been under that they are doing some kind of noble purpose that they're all victims of the system and that they're chosen in some way and he shatters this dream and makes them face the reality of their actions in the show we get a little bit more of this where we see some of them killing themselves one of them calling in their crimes and confessing yeah kind of breaking the hold the Corinthian maybe had over these people and the power he had in this world. I really love, it's something we haven't really talked about, but, you know, Dream, as as far as the idea of dreams go, is, you know, it's so much more than just like, oh, literally the images that go through your head when you're asleep. It's the idea of inspiration, of story, yeah. of ambition, of like basically every interpretation of how we use the word dream. Mm-hmm. That's what Morpheus and Dream is kind of the ruler of. Yeah. And I love seeing all the iterations of that that kind of come up throughout the story. Like in this instance, him addressing this room full of murderers and being like, you're all under the same delusion or dream Mm -hmm. that you're a victim and that you're like defying society and I'm going to like take that away from you. Yeah. And I, I think Neil Gaiman keeps returning to this idea in so many new and interesting ways throughout the series. Yeah, I agree. And then we have kind of the resolution of Rose's arc here as she ends up going back to the B&B and is dreaming more and more and the dreams are merging. So this is where we have seen all the separate dreams of the crazy B&B people. But this time they're all merging together and Mm -hmm. they're all joining one dream. And we literally see... In the comics and in uh, the show, a tornado, a vortex, right? It's a literal vortex sucking them all in. And this is where Gilbert slash Fiddler's Green ends up kind of coming back and realizing that Rose is a vortex and wanting to protect her. Which, by the way, Fiddler's Green played by (laughs) Stephen Fry in the show. Perfect casting. Exceptional casting. He's so good in this. I love this. And he tries to come to Rose's defense. You know, Dream is like... I literally have to kill Rose because if I don't, she's going to suck everybody's mind into this vortex and then they're they're all going to die. And he actually implies that this happened before. Yeah, like in another world Mm -hmm. somewhere else, which is interesting. Yeah, but Fiddler's Green cannot stand in for Rose. So he turns or Gilbert turns back into what he truly was in the dream, which is a beautiful place to have a nice relaxing dream. (laughs) Yes. I love this. I I do too. And. Once again, the special effect of him turning into Fiddler's Green, of like turning into leaves and grass and flowers and like beautiful visual effect. Like it really sells that moment so well. It does. Going on at the same time as everything else that's going on, uh, her great grandmother Unity or Mm -hmm. grandmother in the comics uh, is going through like a sick spell. She either had a stroke or is like currently dealing with a medical issue. Yeah. 
And the show gets a little bit more into this of like her trying to like uncover some kind of truth about herself in the library. Because we we even talked about this, but she was one of the victims of the sleeping sickness, which is what happened to a lot of people when Dream was captured. Yes. Right? A lot of people fell asleep and just couldn't wake up. And then some people just couldn't sleep at all. And this makes sense, right? If the literal embodiment of Dream was captured and he couldn't use his power, that this would affect people in the real world. Yes. And this was also based on like a real illness yeah. of that time that was kind of like undiagnosed and like nobody really knew what the cause of it was. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting too. Yeah. And Unity had slept for a long time and ended up realizing that she had had a child while she was asleep, right? Someone raped her and she gave birth. Um, and this ends up being, you know, her granddaughter Rose, right, and her family. Yes. And Unity is kind of dying at this time, but goes into the dream and comes to this moment where Dream is going to kill Rose and is like, listen, I realized that I was supposed to be the Dream Vortex, but because I fell asleep, I passed on that gift to my children and I want to take that gift back. So kill me and I'll take that vortex ability and I want Rose to live. Yes. It's a very convenient, convenient <laughs> resolution where yeah. the old lady who is already basically at death's door gets to die in place of Rose. And the Rose's power as the vortex, I guess, is gone now. Mm-hmm. And Dream, who really was sympathetic towards her the whole time, even though he was about to unalive her (laughs) uh is like okay you've dealt with enough you can go you and jed will be okay and then we find out as dream is trying to figure this out that actually his sibling desire who goes by they them pronouns yes desire plotted this and in fact desire was the one that sexually assaulted unity yeah. So well, that she would give birth. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because this is hinted at, and this is something that comes back later, this idea that Desire wanted Dream to have to kill Rose, but Dream did not know that Rose was actually his blood mm. because it's a descendant. She's a descendant of Desire. Oh, okay. And so there would be consequences. And this is sort of implied in the show in the comic that if he had killed Rose, there would be consequences for mm. spilling family blood and okay. that that was Desire's intent. And if you know where the comic goes, you know where that is going. But basically, this idea that Desire was trying to hurt or destroy Dream in some way and used Unity, this poor woman, in yeah. his scheme and Rose. And Dream confronts Desire in the comics and in the show And is basically like, what the fuck are you doing? Right? Yeah. Like, you're messing around with people's lives for what? Like, just your own amusement? Mm -hmm. Like, shut the fuck up. (laughs) And Desire's just like, la, la, la. I'm I'm in a cat I'm a cat (laughs) in my weird body palace that is, like, so bizarre. (laughs) Uh, But you know that Desire is also close with their twin, Despair. Despair, thank you. And that they're kind of plotting together. Mm -hmm. And so there's like, there's also hints at uh, another sibling, is it Destiny? Yeah. That has disappeared. Destruction, actually. It's destruction, okay. Mm -hmm. I like that we don't even have a full family picture in mind yet. That like, we're just kind of introduced to the siblings sporadically as they become relevant to the plot. Mm -hmm. And that, and I have only read these two issues before 
earlier, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, a few years ago, I started reading Sandman. And then I needed a break and I didn't come back to it. But this is about where I stopped originally. So mm-hmm. I don't know much of anything that happens beyond this point either. So I'm very curious what goes on. Yeah. And we also in the show get a little bit of a teaser about what might happen next, as I think they're trying to build for season two, where we hear about Lucifer possibly plotting something against Dream as well. Mm -hmm. So we have Lucifer in hell and Desire in their body palace (laughs) uh, plotting against Dream. And so hopefully we do get a season two to find out what happens next. But, Ian... That's that's the end, though, right, Are Adina? we at the end of this episode? No, because <laughs> randomly, out of nowhere, Netflix was like, hey, here's another episode of uh, Sandman. Sandman out of nowhere. God forbid. I hope that they don't drop another episode. Yeah, if they do another <laughs> one after we release this one, I'll I be know. so mad. But... Yeah, we got an episode 11 that just kind of came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. This is a bonus two-part episode, which draws from the third volume of Sandman called, um, what, Dream Country? I don't, I forget what the third volume is called. Yeah, I think it's called Dream Country. But this volume of Sandman is made up of four separate little mini stories in Mm -hmm. which Dream is featured, but it's very, they're very separate kind of episodic vignettes, right? And I love that we get a little taste of this in the show because there are a lot of these in the comics, right? And here we get uh, Dream of a Thousand Cats and Calliope, these two volumes here. And let's talk about the cats, Ian. Yes. This part of the episode is about a young kitten Mm -hmm. that is joining a larger group of cats that is about to hear a cat messiah. The cat prophet. Cat prophet. (laughs) Spreading the good news. Speak to them all. And all they know is that this cat prophet has some kind of message for them. And Mm -hmm. they all gather in the middle of the night in a graveyard to hear her speak. The animation in this gorgeous is so cool. And I love that they just drop this story in the middle of this live action. And they're like, yeah, this is animated. Like, get used to it. It reminds me a lot of uh, the animated portion of Deathly Hallows Part One. Yeah. I think it was mm-hmm. where it's a very unique, interesting animation style. And yet it still feels so a part of the larger narrative. Mm-hmm. I love hearing this story of this cat, right? And it's this Siamese cat who suffered because her owners actually ended up killing the kittens that she had because they were not purebred. Mm -hmm. And she's like, this is fucked up and ends up dreaming and is seeking the king or the dream cat to answer her questions. She goes on this quest and we get a really great cameo from Neil Gaiman himself. Yes. As the bone raven who speaks to her and guides her on this quest. And she eventually finds the dream cat. And we can tell that this is Morpheus, right? This is dream in a cat aspect. And it's a huge cat with like glowing eyes. The design is super Mm -hmm. cool. Yeah. And he tells her, he's like, listen, this world used to be in, like, the cats used to be in control. Yeah, cats ran shit. (laughs) And, like, the humans had to, like, serve the cats, but then at night, the cats just also hunted the humans. And ate them. Because it was fun. (laughs) And things were great for the cats, but a single human rose up and was like, if we all, if a thousand of us humans collectively dream of a better life, Mm -hmm. free from our cat overlords, (laughs) then it will become a reality. And this one human got enough humans to dream this, that it changed not just like the future, but like reality itself. Yeah. So that this alternate world of cats 
dominating people like never existed. Mm-hmm. And, and so now this cat knows the truth, right? <laughs> yes. And now the cat is like, listen, I'm telling all the cats I travel place to place and spreading this awareness. If we can all just dream this together, only a thousand of us are needed. We can bring this world back. And I love this because, again, this is idea, this idea that dreams shape reality, right? Yes. That when we go to sleep, we can dream the world to be different. And also, it's sort of an interesting take on, like, the different nature of, like, cats and humans, mm-hmm. right? Like, you can tell that Neil Gaiman loves cats, right? Because <laughs> this this idea that, like, humans were able to, like, band together and dream a collective dream and cats, like, could not be bothered to participate <laughs> with each other. Like, they cannot get united, yes. you know? Well, it, it brought a different idea to my mind, which is that, is this a recurring cyclical thing that has mm. been happening back and forth for who knows how long yeah where the humans are in charge and then cats are tired of it and they <laughs> like collectively dream themselves into dominance mm-hmm. until the humans get tired and they collectively dream themselves and like this could have happened back and forth who knows how many times yeah if like reality is changing each time how do you know how many times yes it yeah. makes me think of like the matrix yeah where it's like the revelation of like oh there's been more than a single one. Yeah. You know, and like this idea of repeating destiny. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought anyway. No, I like that idea too. <laughs> um, so yeah, this is just such a cool episode, a cool idea. And this is one of the most popular standalone issues in the Sandman series. It's fantastic. For it's so sure. good. Let's talk about uh, Calliope though, because this is a story of an author who cannot write. He has awful writer's block and ends up making this deal with this aging author that he can take possession of a literal Greek muse named Calliope, who inspired Homer and lots of other ancient Greek sources. And she's a goddess, right? And somehow this author trapped her and used specific rituals that she can't break out of. And now he's giving her physically to this author, Rick Maddock. I yes. Think is his name. Yeah. And this whole setup is like really interesting because Rick had to give uh this other author Fry, I think his name was, a magical what was it? Um Bazor? A Bazor, yeah, yeah. In exchange for this muse. Mm-hmm. And he hadn't seen her until he is literally getting her. And I think part of him was like not sure that this was real or would yeah. it be like a literal woman? Like, what is this? But Basically, he's like, okay, well, I now own this living person yeah. that is under my control, and I have to rape her yeah. in order to gain this, like, enlightened sense of inspiration to continue my writing. Yeah, I think it's interesting that in this show, he, like, tries to woo her and get her to, like, give him uh, inspiration for his books without sexually assaulting her, but when it comes down to the wire for him, like he really needs it, he does assault her. I don't like the way that Calliope is portrayed in the comics, and I think they intentionally did things different in the show. Like in the comics, she's always naked, and not just that, but she's like, the way that she's drawn, it's really gross, and the fact that she's being sexually assaulted over and over, I feel is like a little bit like... 
exploited in the comics. Yeah, like they're constantly sexualizing her in all these like poses. Yeah. uh, Just like always making her look sexy and being like, oh, like my plight is so terrible. Like, yeah. uh, And you do feel bad for her. But then again, like the way she's visually depicted feels like. You're supposed to be turned on by her? Yeah, and the show does not show any scenes of sexual assault, which I was really happy about. And it also does a really good job of just showing how awful this man is in, like, different ways. We get that horrible conversation, which when he has found success because he is sexually assaulting her, someone is, like, interviewing him and is like, oh, where do you, how do you write such great female characters? And he's like, oh, because of the great women in my life. I've always thought of myself as, like, a feminist author. Oh, my God. He names, like, all these, like, female authors as, like, his inspiration. Yeah. Uh, Just insufferable. Yeah. It's really bad. And Calliope ends up calling out for help. And she's told that no one can really help her because of the ritual that has bound her is, like, they can't break it. Um, but the idea of calling on Dream is suggested to her. And she finds out, actually, that Dream has been captured as well. And later on, she realizes that she's free and she calls to him. But we realize that they used to be lovers. <laughs> yep. Um, horny Dream is my favorite dream. Oh, my God. I love him. Because we get some episode. of this in the uh, the Nada <laughs> story that we didn't discuss this episode. Yeah. And we get some of it here, too, that, like... He seems so, like, asexual and uninterested in, like, people or any other, you know, entities. (laughs) But, like, when he is, he's, like, really into it, it seems. And, like, he just has this, this, like, smoldering intensity about him. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Especially in the show in this episode, he is, like so furiously sexy like he is so angry but in a hot way yeah and i'm like okay yeah this is good he is horrified to find calliope you know captured like this and he's just really great in this episode yes like he she's talking about like well you've been captured too and he's like don't even compare what you've Mm -hmm. suffered to what i've suffered like he recognizes that she's dealing with a lot worse than him and then He also makes a point to emphasize to her that he is not angry and he doesn't want revenge because she used to be his, but because she is her own person and she's been violated. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree. I just love it so much. And then when he confronts the author. Yeah. And the author starts making excuses and he goes, hold your tongue. (laughs) Like He's just so fucking done with him. Yeah. But then he gets his great revenge when he's like, you need ideas. I'll give you an abundance of ideas. Mm -hmm. And of course, this leads to the author having like a complete mental, (laughs) like psychic breakdown of just like spewing ideas too many ideas too many concepts for books or i and in the show he does this when he's like doing a speaking tour yeah uh (laughs) and he just has this like total breakdown i love it and he physically breaks down too because he tries to write in his own blood the ideas Mm -hmm. on the wall so he's like destroyed his hands and so they're like we need to get him to a doctor and he's like no let that woman out of my attic and they're like what what are you talking about there's a woman in my attic go let her out please here's the key you need to tell her she can go (laughs) and so calliope is freed in this moment and we do get this scene where 
she thanks Dream for what he's done, asks him to actually stop tormenting the author. She's like, okay, like, that was fun, but, like, we can let him go now. (laughs) And then we get these hints about their past, right? We find out that they had a son together and that son died. And that they kind of hated each other for a while Mm -hmm. because probably of their grief, right, in this event that happened. And the two of them sort of coming together and, you know, them saying that they don't hate each other anymore, but also not really being able to come together because I think their grief is still too much. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because you can feel the sexual tension between them, right? But it's just like there's too much that's happened between them. And it's interesting to consider like how many people or gods or whatever in dreams lifetime that he's had relationships with and like these emotional bonds too. And, uh, but yeah, no, their, their chemistry in this one episode is like so freaking good. So good. I really just like that. They ended the season with this kind of back to back, yeah, like isolated story that features dream, but it's not really about him. Well, and I like in this episode with Calliope that we see a lot more of his personal life, right? We're seeing this romantic love he had, that he had a son, hints of his past, and also him helping somebody, Mm -hmm. right? And seeing, like, that he knows what it's like to be trapped after what he's been through, and that's changed him. Yeah, yeah, furthering that idea of his, like, growth as a character. Okay, I think we did it. (laughs) I am so fucking proud of us. 11 episodes. (laughs) Yeah. Which one's better, Ian? You know, I... I think I want to go with the show on this. I think I am too. And I mean, it was, I think, hard earned. Like, yeah, like we said, I don't think I could have gone with the show if it was as reliant on visual effects. But if the visual effects weren't as quality as they are. Yeah. Like something we didn't mention. Matthew. Yes. The Raven. The animation of him is the best like, I think, animal character animation I've ever seen in anything. It's so good. And I know part of that's, like, the, the actual animation, not just the visual effects, but, like, the kind of his movements and the way he talks and, like, mm-hmm. it feels so real and authentic. Like, that brings his character to life. Like, the environments, like... And, I mean, it is so faithful to the comics. Yes. But makes, I think, good improvements on it, whether... We don't have the clutter of the DC characters. no. Or whether it's, like, the moral or ethical issues relating to certain things, like that Calliope episode. Mm -hmm. And also with the casting being more diverse, I really liked, too. Yeah, they really took that opportunity to change things and used it in a really good way. I also think they intentionally have dream change and grow in more emotionally impactful ways in the show. Yeah. His whole thing with Lucienne, his more impactful moments with Calliope as well. And also, I just think having a face to dream makes him a lot more easy to identify with. Yeah. Like in the comics, sometimes he's drawn really weird, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm like, okay, he's just like this figure. But like, I feel like Tom Sturgis like really embodies dream. He makes him seem like a person with feelings and emotions. And also he's very attractive. So (laughs) he's a handsome man. It works. Yeah. I mean, for the most part. I think, like, in a lot of issues of the comic, like, you're not meant to relate to Dream in any kind of personable way. But in the show, you just can't help 
but relate to him because it is a person embodying that character. Yeah. And I do like the episodic or like isolated story quality of the comics and Mm -hmm. how they brought that to the show. But like you were saying, just the addition of his emotional growth throughout it, I think, does a lot to elevate the material. Yeah, and we're still complimenting Neil Gaiman because he was heavily involved in this show. And I mean, so much is the lines are directly pulled from the comics. Oh, visuals. Visuals are drawn. I mean, they are so connected, right? But I just loved watching the show. I really hope they do a season two. I know. I can't wait to watch more. It was just such a treat. And if you haven't watched it, please watch it. If you haven't read the comics, it's really worth it. Like, it's such a deep and interesting and unique type of story. Like, this really changed comic books at the time. Yeah, and I mean, just the way he's able to connect history and mythology mm-hmm. and e- comic characters like yeah even though i don't think that works super well mm-hmm. for the most part i still like the idea of it yeah and yeah i mean neil gaiman just ties so many big ideas together like so kind of effortlessly into mm-hmm. this universe that is like mysterious and engaging and you just want to keep like knowing more about yeah neil gaiman does a really great job in in creating something like that yeah for sure so it's it's slightly a show for us but go go out and read the comics if you haven't yes (laughs) uh should we do a lightning yeah let's do lightning round so first off for lightning round i need to talk about zelda and chantal who dressed like brides with veils over their heads and then had this, the largest collection of stuffed spiders, apparently. Yes. And there's so many funny things about them, but there is this one part where... Oh God, I know what you're going to talk about. (laughs) I know exactly. So Rose, you know, disrupts all their dreams. They were all in the same dream together because she's vortexing them, right? She almost sucks them all in. And then when they all wake up, everybody's been kind of changed. And, like, Barbie and Ken end up breaking up. Like, Hal decides to change his life. And we have Zelda and Chantal waking up from their dream. (laughs) And this is the words that are written. It says, Chantal and Zelda woke, scared and lonely. They didn't talk. They held each other in the darkness like sisters until the dawn. Okay, sure. The image of it, though, <laughs> is two naked women holding each other in bed with each other. You know, like sisters, Ian. <laughs> they were friends. Yes. They were sisters. And you know how sisters naked hold each other in the night for comfort. Adi- uh, Adina, I literally <laughs> took a video of this on my phone, panning from... Oh my God, we have to post the this. Pan- yes, we will post this. <laughs> Panning from the words over to the image. Yeah, and I'm like, was this a disconnect between Neil Gaiman writing and the artist's drawing? Or was this just a case of, like, I don't know. Weird fetishizing. And they were roommates. And they were roommates. (laughs) I don't know. But I just thought it was just so ridiculous and stupid. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of Zelda and Chantel, uh, there's just this really funny part. And the the show kept this line, too, (laughs) where... Chantel is the only one who speaks. Yeah. Zelda doesn't speak. <laughs> but Rose is really upset by something. And so Jean- Chantel is saying, Zelda has a reassuring moral homily concerning God, difficult times, and a variable number of footprints in the sand. <laughs> she told it to me once, and it cheered me up remarkably. <laughs> 
I love the idea that these creepy <laughs> sisters would tell like the cheesiest Christian. Yes. Like, and it was then that I carried you yes. footsteps in the sand. <laughs> it's very good. Yeah. Uh, next for lightning round, we mentioned like Martian Manhunter making an appearance in these comics, and in fact. Dream ends up trying to track down the Justice League of America, Ian, to find out who has his ruby because Dr. Destiny had it and they defeated Dr. Destiny and then he went to Arkham Asylum. And literally he wakes some guy up in the middle of the night. I don't remember what his name is. Uh, It was something... It was like a corny name. Yeah. I forget. Some lesser superhero, right? And he's like, let me go through the Justice uh, League files. Itinerary. Like he's on the computer, like looking <laughs> yeah. things up. And then they're like, oh, we have to find Martian Manhunter. And then Martian Manhunter is like, we Martians revere Dream or something. I don't know. It was just like so stupid. <laughs> and I was like, why is Dream watching a man type away on a computer? Like, this is not what I want. <laughs> yeah, it really just felt like an unnecessary shoehorning of like other DC characters into this story. Very Although painful. I will say I love the idea of like in this world where there's Superman who seems like the most powerful yeah. like character in the universe that like, Oh, yeah, but no, there's gods and, like, eternal beings, and, like, Superman is very is small. Nothing. He's, like, nothing compared to, <laughs> to Dream or any of the others. Yeah. But, yes, that is that is lightning round, uh, and that is the episode. Thank you so much for going on this journey through yes. the Sandman with us. Mm-hmm. I think we've managed to keep it under two hours. <laughs> uh, dream, a little dream tonight uh, of your own making. Remember, you might remake the world in whichever way you prefer. Yes, you might make cats the dominant life form <laughs> on this planet. Uh, so be careful with uh, with the dreaming. Yes. But yes, thank you so much for listening. If you would like to support us, best way to do that is to become a patron. Um, you can check us out over on Patreon, and we have tons of bonus episodes We have a Discord for our patrons, and you also get priority episode requests. So if you really want us to do an episode, we um, do all the episodes that our patrons suggest. So go ahead and become a patron. Yes. Uh, If you listen on Spotify, uh, Spotify, Spotify, (laughs) God damn, it's been two hours. Leave me alone. Uh, (laughs) If you listen on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please consider giving us a star rating or review on either of those platforms. It really helps with our visibility on uh, those platforms. And uh, go to CoverToCredits.com <laughs> for our links to Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I'm running out of steam. If you want to see that video of Chantal and Zelda holding each other like sisters, maybe follow us on social media. Maybe sisters. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.